sure, sure you are aware, light is an absolutely indispensable commodity in life. Without light, there is no uh, life. I have uh, had this illustrated in my own experience at uh, home. I am an avid reader of uh, spy novels. And when I pick up the latest Robert Ludlum tome, I'll often want to read uh, past uh, curfew. And when the uh, lights are out, Debbie banishes me to the living room if I want to continue to read. And so I will do so on occasion. And when I finish reading for the night, I'll turn the light off in the living room. And I've had many times the adventure of trying to make my way from the living room to the bedroom in the pitch uh, darkness. And I've taken advantage of the occasion to stub... uh, Numerous of my toes, uh, bang my shins. One time I ran into the hall closet door with my forehead straight into it. And I discovered from my own experience that it's very difficult to navigate without hurting yourself if you don't have light. If you walk in the darkness, despite your best intentions, I know where the furniture is. No matter how sincere my intentions are, I still wind up uh, hurting myself. Now, God is fond in the Scriptures of using things like this from the physical realm to illustrate things that are also true in the spiritual realm. The same thing that is true in the physical kingdom, that without light there is no life, is also true in the spiritual kingdom. Without spiritual light there is no life. Unless we have a source of light in the physical kingdom, we cannot navigate life successfully. We can't see where to walk. We stumble and trip. And unless we have a source of light in the spiritual kingdom, we cannot navigate the world of the soul and the spirit without likewise uh, tripping and stumbling and injuring ourselves and the lives of those around us. Now that's the metaphor that Jesus uses in John 8, if you would turn there with me, to describe his own ministry. We'll begin with verse 12 of John chapter 8, and this is the familiar passage in which Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is the second of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. Uh, We've seen the first in chapter 6 when he said, I am the bread of life, which has come down from heaven. We will see the other five as we proceed through our study in the Gospel. And this is the second of those great statements in which Jesus describes for us the nature of his work and his ministry. In the passage we're looking at today, he identifies himself as the light of the world. Verse 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. I believe Jesus spoke these words on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth day of that festival. And there was some rich symbolism associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. As David mentioned two weeks ago, there was a water ceremony, which was a symbol in the Feast of Tabernacles, of the water which issued forth from the rock in the wilderness to sustain the people. The Feast of Tabernacles, as you remember, commemorated their wanderings in the wilderness, the 40 years when they wandered in the wilderness and God sustained them. With manna from heaven as Jesus pointed out in chapter 6, with water from the rock, as he pointed out in chapter 7, and then with the cloud of fire by day and the pillar of fire by night, by which he illumined their path and by which he directed their steps. 
Now, in the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two giant candelabras that were set up in the very courtyard where Jesus is teaching these words. We find in verse 20 that Jesus taught these words in the treasury. The treasury uh, was an, a word for the courtyard in which there were 13 giant receptacles in the shape of trumpets into which people would cast their offerings as they came into the temple for worship. It was into one of these 13 trumpets or receptacles that the widow cast her might, as Mark records for us in Mark chapter 12. It was called a court of women because it was a precinct in the temple where all Jews could go, men and women alike, and often rabbis would teach to the throngs that were gathered there for these festivals. There was two, two giant candelabras, as I mentioned, that were lit the first night of the festival, and then every night thereafter, these giant candlesticks would be lit, and they would provide illumination for the temple precincts. But on the last night of the festival, when I think Jesus uttered these words, these menorahs were not lit. They were left dark and silent. And I believe that what Jesus did is in stark contrast to these two dark, unlit menorahs, which the people could see on the other side of the courtyard, Jesus said, in contrast, I am the light of the world. Intending for us to see the cloud in the wilderness and the pillar of fire as a symbol for his ministry as the one who was the light of the world. Light, I believe, serves as a metaphor for two things in this situation. The first is that light is a metaphor in the scriptures for truth or that which illumines life or imparts understanding. We often use that in everyday language when we ask someone if they can shed some light on this subject. It's a metaphor for imparting understanding. When Jesus tells us then that he is the light of the world, it's his way of saying to us that I am the one who imparts understanding to you. I am the one who illumines the spirit and the soul of man so that he's able to correctly see life and understand reality and see life as it really is. I am the light of the world. I am the one who imparts understanding, illumination, truth about life. This, I believe, is the explanation for the, the appeal of psychology, why pop psychology books are consistent bestsellers, why psychology courses in college are often uh, crowded to capacity, because all of us as people have a built-in desire to understand. We want to understand ourselves. We want to understand the forces that shape us. We want to know what concepts and truths we need to understand to cope with them. We want to understand our relationships and why they work and why they don't. We want to understand what makes marriages work and what makes them fall apart. We long to understand those. And that's why books on these subjects and courses on these subjects have such an appeal to us. Well, when Jesus tells us, I am the light of the world, I believe he is saying to us, I am the one that answers that deep need that you have to understand yourself and to understand life. If you follow me, as he goes on to say, I will impart this understanding to you. You will begin to understand why you do the things that you do and how you can stop doing the things that harm you. And how you can begin to put the pieces of your life back together and find a basis of security and confidence and adequacy for life. And how you can begin to function in your marriage in a way that will bring health and life to that relationship rather than distance and destruction. I, Jesus says, am the light of the world. The second thing that the cloud served and the pillar of fire served to do for the Israelites in the wilderness was to give them direction. 
I've just been studying through that passage in Numbers with our interns in which the role of the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle was described. As you remember, as long as the cloud stayed in place over the tabernacle, the people did not move. When the cloud lifted and began to move, the people would, would uh, pack up their stakes and fold up the pup tents and move to follow it. It was the cloud by day and the pillar of fire which gave them direction for their wanderings in the wilderness. That's how they knew when to move and when to stay. That's the second thing that Jesus offers to do for us in being the light of the world, to give direction to life. I expect a number of you in this room are faced with uh, major choices that will determine the direction of your life, at least for the new future, in some cases longer. Choices about education, choices uh, about vocation, consideration of vocational changes, job transfers. And what you are seeking is to know when to move out, when to pitch camp, when to stay put, and when to pack up your stakes and move. Well, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one that offers to provide that ministry to us, to let us know when it's time to stay put, when it's time to move on. When I was in seminary, uh, I wanted out for the last two years. It was a four-year program altogether, and I had had all I could take after two years. And I wanted out anything but two more years of this. And each day I would ask the Lord for an alternative. Lord, get me out of here. Now, why we ask our interns to stick around for three when I could barely tolerate two, I don't know, but we do. But at any rate, the deal that I struck with the Lord is that uh, I don't want to quit. I didn't feel good about just quitting something. So I said, Lord, uh, if you give me an alternative to this, I will pursue it. But I'm going to trust you to be the one to open that door. And for two years, he didn't. In other words, the cloud, the pillar of fire, stayed in one place. And Debbie and I discerned from that that we were to stay. That was the place for us at that time. And then upon graduation, the cloud lifted and moved from Dallas to Boise, Idaho. And it's settled here in Boise. And that's where we have pitched our tent for the last uh, six years. Now, God will exercise that ministry for you. I don't know how he'll impart that sort of direction to you, perhaps a quiet inner conviction that you will have that it's time for a change or time to stay, perhaps a door that he will open that uh, opens miraculously that no man can open, and you sense the need to walk through that door, the counsel of a good friend, perhaps, a vivid answer to prayer. Who knows how he will serve to be the light of the world, but he promises to do that for you. Now, Jesus says here that he is the light of the world. What he means by that is there is no other source of illumination or direction available to mankind. There's no other place to look for this. The Zen masters don't have this. Carl Sagan doesn't have this. Zoroaster doesn't have this. Buddha doesn't have this. I don't have this. David Roper doesn't have this. Jesus alone is the light of the world. There is no other source of light apart from him. And if we don't draw upon this only source of light that exists in the world, then we are compelled to walk in darkness. I believe that's why society has made so little progress and why it constantly tries the same solutions over and over again, the solutions that have never worked in the past, never will work. When Ray Steadman was here last fall for a pastor's conference, I think many of you remember this, he... Uh, pointed out that he had been reading in one of the ancient uh, historians and had recorded, jotted down the concerns that this historian had about society, civilization in his time. 
The first thing this man was intensely concerned about was corruption in the political arena. See if these sound familiar, by the way. The second thing he was deeply concerned about was an imminent clash of superpowers. The world was on the brink of a conflagration. The third thing that troubled him was the breakdown of the family. Traditional family values were disintegrating and the very fabric of society was beginning to decay. The fourth thing that troubled him was the uh, juvenile delinquency problem. Youth were rebellious and anti-authoritarian. He was concerned about this. And the fifth thing that troubled him were the potholes in the public roads. Now, since then, we have had uh, roughly 4,000 years. And I ask you, have we made any progress in any one of those five areas? Well, the answer is no. And the reason is there is only one source of light. If you don't turn to that source of light, there is no help. There is no illumination, no understanding, no direction apart from him. Well, how do you get this light into your life? Well, Jesus says quite simply, the one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. To follow Jesus means to become his disciple, to become a learner at his feet, someone who is willing to sit at his feet in humility and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and do what he asks, to follow him in faith and obedience. I learned this principle when I was in Suriname last year with David Melhoff and Jim Crumley. Uh, Jim was packing along a brand new $10 DuraBeam flashlight. And one night when we went to visit another couple living in this village, I forgot my flashlight. The generators in this village would operate until 10, and then when they shut off, it was black. It was pitch black. If you've ever backpacked in the sawtooths, you know at night how dark it can get. Well, that's how dark it got. And we're talking here the jungles of South America. And I had left my flashlight back in my, uh, my bag. Well, I knew that the only way I was going to be able to negotiate the jungles of South America and get back to my cabin was if I followed someone who had the light. I knew, was convinced that there were man-eating piranhas that stalked those jungles under cover of darkness, and I wanted no part of that. And so when Jim clicked on that DuraBeam and headed out the door, I followed him right in his footsteps. I was on him like hair on a gorilla because I knew that he was my ticket home. The only way I would be able to see clearly to walk was to follow one who had the light. Now that's the offer that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will have the light of life. You'll gain understanding about yourself and life and see clearly how to walk and gain direction for life. Now, why is it if Jesus offered to be these things to the people of his day, they didn't accept him and didn't acknowledge him as the light? Well, I believe verses 13 to 20 explain that. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. 
And so they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The initial response of the Pharisees is that your testimony is not valid because you are the only one saying these things. Jesus goes on to say that's actually not true. We studied this in John chapter 5, you'll remember. Jesus says, there is another who corroborates my testimony about myself, and that is the Father who bears witness to me by enabling me to do the works that no man can do. He testifies to the truth of my claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah. But Jesus says, even if I didn't have a corroborating witness, which in fact I do, my testimony about myself would still be the truth. It would still be valid because I know where I came from, that is, from the very presence of God the Father himself, and I know where I am going, that is, back to the very presence of God the Father himself. Knowing where he came from and where he was going imparted to him this quiet sense of confidence and authority about what he said. Now, the same is true, by the way, for us. It's knowing where we came from, what the source of our life is, where our resources for life can be found, and where we are going, the plans and purposes that God has for us to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what imparts to us the same sense of authority and confidence that Jesus carried around with him in life. And then Jesus explains, puts his finger on why it is that the Pharisees rejected the light of the world. He says to them, you people judge according to the flesh. In other words, when you look at me, you evaluate me according to external standards, according to the standards that the world uses to pass judgment on people and determine their value and their importance. And you realize Jesus was an unimpressive-looking Messiah. He was the last man in the world that the Pharisees expected to fit the profile of the Messiah came from a very small family of no influence or status, had no wealth to speak of, had not been to any of the great seminaries of his day, Dallas Theological Seminary or the Cole Center for Biblical Studies, didn't have the right degree to hang on his wall, didn't have the right pedigree. In physical appearance, we're told by Isaiah that he was ordinary, unexceptional, had no uh, form that was desirable that we should gaze upon him, Isaiah says. A very ordinary man according to the flesh. And because the Pharisees couldn't judge men on any other basis than that, they rejected the one who was, in fact, the light of the world. Now, many today are in danger of making the same sort of judgment about Jesus, a very shallow, superficial judgment according to the flesh. When I talk to people about Jesus, I find that they are often willing to acknowledge that he was a great moral teacher, They recognize the wisdom in much of what he's taught. And then dismiss him, put him on the same level with other great teachers down through the ages. But that's simply evaluating him according to the flesh, something that Jesus would never permit. C.S. Lewis put it this way. This quote has been referred to before, but it's worth repeating. He says this about Jesus and those who would say about him that he was simply a great moral teacher. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, Jesus himself said that I am not judging anyone. In other words, he said, I do not evaluate people according to external standards as you do. That's not the basis on which I choose my friends. That's obviously why he hung around with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and wine-bibbers and gluttons, because he didn't choose his friends on the basis of external characteristics. The only thing that mattered to Jesus when he evaluated people was the condition of their hearts. If he saw in them a heart that was soft and responsive to the truth, it made no difference to him what they looked like externally, the color of their skin or their status, or their influence. The only thing that mattered to him was the condition of the heart. I hope that you have learned that. The only thing that should matter to us about people is the same thing, whether they are properly related to Jesus Christ or not. That's what makes the Aryan Nations Church so offensive, that in the name of Jesus Christ, they would judge according to the flesh and refuse to have anything to do with an entire segment of the population of the world simply because of the color of their skin. Now, those of you high school students that will be going to high school camp will have a good opportunity this week to either judge people according to the flesh or according to the heart. I remember well when I was in camp, there was a tendency to avoid uh, the geeks and try to hang around with people that would make me look good, who could help me and who would uh, tarnish or who would uh, take the tarnish off of my own self-image. And I have an opportunity to make that same decision. Will I hang around with people who make me look good? Or will I hang around people whose hearts are soft and responsive to the Master himself? Now, Jesus goes on in verses 19 and 20 to explain to the Pharisees that if you had acknowledged me, you would know my Father. But because you refuse to accept me for who I really am, you cannot know the Father. It was the principle of incarnation that Jesus is referring to here. In other words, what he says to the Pharisees, if you get to know me, in reality you are getting to know the Father, because the Father is the one who is incarnate in me. It is his life and his character which is being manifest in the circumstances of my life. Now, the principle of incarnation is still at work today. This is how people get to know the Jesus who lives in us, is by their contact with us. Jesus is incarnate in us, and as he manifests out through our normal, everyday circumstances, his life and his character, if people are responding to the truth, then they will get to know Jesus through us. They will begin to see the reality of the life which is at work in us. Jesus goes on in verses 21 through 24 to explain the consequences of turning your back on the one who is the light of life, and they are serious. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore, the Jews were saying, 
Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Jesus said to the Pharisees, where I am going, you cannot come. Very sarcastically, they say, well, he must be thinking of committing suicide. In Jewish thought, a man who committed suicide was assigned to the nether parts of the world of the dead, the lowest parts, the darkest parts of the world of the dead. It was inconceivable to these self-righteous Pharisees that they would not be in paradise with God. So they said to themselves, if Jesus is going where we cannot go, he must be going straight to hell. He must be thinking of suicide. But Jesus, in fact, is saying to them that I am going to spend eternity with the Father. That's where, I, that's where I will go upon my resurrection. I will ascend and spend eternity with my Father. And where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That is, you will spend an eternity apart from the presence of the light and the life of God. They realize immediately we're not playing for nickels and dimes here. This is serious business. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you can be where I am, spend eternity with the Father. If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins, that is, with your sins unforgiven, undealt with, and spend an eternity apart from God. There's one doctrine that I, if it was up to me, would eliminate from the scriptures, it would be the doctrine of hell makes me uncomfortable. Probably does you at times. It seems uh, so out of phase with a tolerance of modern thought and so forth. And yet Jesus himself was the one that said, unless a man believes that I am he, he will die in his sins. And so we are compelled to believe that people who do not respond in faith to Jesus will spend an eternity separated from God. Now, that's what ought to give us a sense of urgency about the two and a half billion unreached people that Dan talked about. There's an epidemic of sin which has swept through the human race, and it's killing everyone in its path. And there's an antidote for that, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And the urgency upon us is to get the antidote to people who need it and who will die unless they receive it. This is what gives an urgency to us about our prayers for our neighbors and the people we work with. Unless they believe that Jesus is the one, they will die in their sins. A friend of Debbie and I has told us this past week in sharing the gospel with a friend of hers at work that the friend said to her that I think it's very egotistical of someone to say, uh, in order to have eternal life, you must give your whole life over to me. She thought that was the height of arrogance. And if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, then it is. It is the height of arrogance. But if he is who he claimed to be, then he is the only source of salvation and light that exists. This was not adequate for the Pharisees. They continued to respond to him in sarcasm in verses 25 through 30. And I believe what Jesus reveals to us here in these verses is how the breakthrough occurs, how someone who has resisted the light of the world persisted in walking in darkness, comes to the point of recognizing him as the light. 
They were saying to him, verse 25, Who are you? The emphasis in the original is on the you. You, who do you think you are? Sarcasm dripping from their question. Jesus said to them, What I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. They say, Who are you? Jesus says, How many times do I have to tell you? I'm the same one that I have been telling you I am right from the beginning. And he goes on to say that the things that he teaches, the things that he imparts, he did not derive from himself. He didn't think these up. These ideas, these concepts, these truths came from God the Father himself. And Jesus says to them, those of you that will recognize this about me, that I am who I claim to be, will recognize that about me when I am lifted up. He's referring there to his crucifixion. When you lift me up on the cross and gaze at me on the cross, those of you that will see that I am the light of the world will see it at that moment when you understand why I have been put on the cross. This is what brings people to an awareness of their need for a Savior when they begin to understand that the reason that the cross took place, the reason that Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up was because we, you and I, put Him there. He died for our greed and self-centeredness, and selfishness, and our lust, and envy, and pettiness, and impatience, and anger. The sorts of things that we should have died for. He died in our place. And the cross is God's word that puts an end to all efforts to, to sanctify ourselves, to depend upon ourselves, and tells us that all of our self-effort is in vain. When a man realizes that, when he sees Jesus lifted up on the cross, the breakthrough can begin to take place. He realizes that Jesus is there in his place and that he needs the provision that is made for him on the cross. That's when men come to recognize that Jesus is the light of the world. I want to point out a couple of things in closing. In verse 24 and in verse 28, you will see a curious thing. If you have a New American Standard, it reads in the middle of the verse, For unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. In verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. You will notice that the He is italicized, meaning that it was not in the original text. What Jesus literally says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is connecting this with Exodus 3.14, where Yahweh revealed to the people of Israel that His name was, I am who I am. And the name Yahweh is drawn from the Hebrew verb to be. means the one who is, the one who always is. I believe the reason that God chose this name for Himself is that He wanted the people of Israel, and Jesus wanted the people of His day to understand that there was a blank that followed that statement. And that you could fill in on that blank anything that you happen to need. I am, Jesus says, the light of the world if you need light. 
I am the bread which has come down from heaven, if you need nourishment. Uh, I am the water from the rock, if your thirst needs to be satisfied. I am the blood which is poured out for you, if you need forgiveness for your guilt. That I am, Jesus says, whatever you need. And unless we come to the point of recognizing that Jesus is whatever we need, we will die in our sins. But if we understand that He is the great I Am, that when Yahweh spoke those words in Exodus 3, Jesus spoke them with Him, then we begin to recognize He's the one that satisfies and fulfills. And He is whatever we need this coming week. A preacher by the name of Philip Brooks around the turn of the century said this about the sunrise, and I want you to think of Jesus as the light of the world, pictured in the sunrise as I read this. When the sun rose this morning, it found the world in darkness, torpid and heavy and asleep, with powers all wrapped up in sluggishness, with life that was hardly better or more alive than death. The sun found this great sleeping world and woke it. It bade it to be itself. It quickened every slow and sluggish faculty. It called to the dull streams and said, Be quick, to the dull birds and bade them sing to the dull fields and made them grow, to dull men and women and bade them think and talk and work. It flashed electric invitation to the whole mass of sleeping power, which really was the world, and summoned it to action. It did not start another set of processes unlike those which had been sluggishly moving in the darkness. It poured strength into the essential processes which belonged to the very nature of the earth. It glorified intensified, and fulfilled the earth. Well, that's Jesus' offer to us this morning. He is the light of the world. If your life needs to be glorified, intensified, fulfilled, He's the one to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have not left us in darkness. You've not left us to grope about seeking to understand life and the things that make it fall apart and the things that make it work. We thank you that you have sent to us the light of the world. And we express, Lord, together our desire this week to follow him and to have in that the life, the light of life. We pray that you will guide us this week and be to us the light of the world. Amen.